0: I'm Bill Tillman, co-host of BC Polytech. And
1: I'm Daniel Fontaine.
0: Today, we've got Greg Davignon, the President and CEO of the Business Council of British Columbia, one of the most uh, obviously biggest and most influential groups of businesses that represent some of the largest firms in the province, uh, talking about the economy, coronavirus, all sorts of stuff.
1: There are a lot of questions that, uh, that I have for the Business Council, and like you said, they do represent some of the largest companies in the province, a lot of forestry, mining, um, and you see the news every week, uh, someone's doing a protest for this or that, and a lot of that relates directly to the stuff that the BC Business Council represents. So I'm gonna be talking to, or asking some questions to him about the protests, about the blockades, and and like you indicated, uh, the coronavirus, I mean, it's it's emerging as a potentially huge economic issue. Uh, as, as we tape this, uh, the markets are kind of going crazy right now, so we know that um, the stock markets are being impacted, also supply chains. I'd like to, to perhaps if we have moment to talk to him a little bit about that because we know that our global world uh, is, is right now being disrupted. And, and so interesting to hear from Greg on that point.
0: Yeah, and we also want to talk about Indigenous issues given the recent history and perhaps ongoing history of, of blockades of transportation, mm-hmm. which caused enormous economic upheaval at the same time as the coronavirus. And, you know, Daniel, the Business Council as well as Labour and others have been very instrumental in working with uh, First Nations leaders and First Nations businesses to try and and more integrate and as part of, I guess, reconciliation, Mm -hmm. to try and help businesses that are indigenously owned uh, get further ahead, also get workers into apprenticeships and training in areas they haven't been. Um, Greg has been very instrumental in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm worried, and I will ask him about this. I'm worried about what the impact is when people get mad at blockaders who represent a tiny fraction, if any, of some of those Indigenous groups.
1: I can only imagine what's going through Greg's mind and his members when they've invested so much time as as Labour and other organizations around that reconciliation issue and then to perhaps see it all kind of blow away just through uh, a few months of protests and blockades. So I'm sure he'll have something really interesting to talk about on that point. And I'm also gonna raise with him, it's not perhaps something that's directly related to the BC Business Council, but around the whole concept of Uber getting and Lyft getting this regional license. And, and are we um, looking at a potential template for other businesses to be able to get get regional licenses, and and are we looking at the right region? Uh, are we looking far enough? And so I'm going to be asking him about that as well. Yeah.
0: And we know that Greg wants to talk about the recent BC budget and some of the things that are in it and some of the things that aren't. So we'll be right back with Greg Davignon. BC Polytalk thanks Harbour Air for supporting the show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show. Greg, welcome to BC Polytalk. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. There are a lot of things on the agenda for the BC Business Council. There's a lot of things going on in our BC economy that are of concern or of alarm, uh, and there's also some positives going on as well. What, in the view of the Business Council, is the biggest single thing right now when we sit down here today that's concerning you?
2: Well, that's a very specific question on a very complex answer. (laughs) Um, I think the biggest thing that I'm concerned about is change and the lack of our ability to respond and move quickly to it. Uh, We're lagging and getting behind change that's happening globally, uh, both as a province and as a country. And we're going to pay the consequences for that, perhaps not tomorrow or the next day, but certainly in the next few years, where our productivity is going to decline, our wages will be um, a consequence of of that lack of investment in productivity-enhancing capital. We'll have lower and more muted wages, and we'll have lost some opportunity for capital to come into the marketplace And then that capital then begets the fact that we may have some tensions around getting the talent we need to actually drive the economy going forward. So I'm worried that we're not focusing on the rapid pace of change that's taking place in the world and our opportunities within that change.
0: So when you say change, there's technological change, which we're all quite familiar Mm -hmm. with as we increasingly live in a digital age. We had the Minister of Digital Mm -hmm. Government here, which is a cabinet portfolio that never existed when you and I were involved in Mm -hmm. politics. Um, But there's also climate change. There's also Mm. social change. Um, So which or are are all of those what you're concerned about?
2: Well, they're all connected in many respects and and they're connected uh, in different ways, depending on which generation you're in. Um, There's great fear and anxiety with young people around climate change and the impact in their lifetime of what that's going to mean. And the irony is in British Columbia, we have a great opportunity. Um, 75% of our merchandise exports, whether we like to admit it or not, Mm -hmm. are the things that we take from the ground and grow from it. Uh, Forest products, uh, minerals, um, other uh, mining products like aluminum, uh, upstream oil and gas. We've just done some work for the last year with the province of British Columbia in an unprecedented level of cooperation. And we identified that the things that we sell to the world, Bill, are half the GHG intensity of the same products that other pro- other countries sell around the world. But we're about 11 to 87% less competitive than those jurisdictions. So the ability to invest capital to actually get people to buy more BC products. So if you care about climate change, that's what you should be doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So for example, if I want to buy an electric vehicle, it takes four times more copper than a combustion engine. Well, the copper in British Columbia is about 48% the GHG intensity. Uh, Gas is half the intensity of West Texas crude or crude from um, uh, uh, Iran. Our natural gas is even lower than that. Our LNG is the lowest in the world. So we've got this growing global population that needs to be fed and needs to reduce its carbon Mm -hmm. footprint. We need more BC, but we're actually punishing those businesses and that capital is going elsewhere and accelerating climate change and we're losing the economic opportunity and jobs so, and innovation.
0: So we're selling greener, but we're not doing a very good job when we sell it.
2: We're talking about <laughs> it, but we're not actually doing the hard
0: yeah. work to make it happen. Yeah.
1: So Greg, just uh, shifting gears a little bit, in urban areas, we've been seeing a number of blockades and protests, mm-hmm. number of environmentalists that are out there. Um, they're protesting many of the things you just talked about, the exports uh, that are coming from the mm-hmm. ground. And we've talked about it with other guests as well, mm-hmm. uh, with Ellis Ross and, and other MLAs about The issue of trying to get people in urban areas to better understand that uh, so much of our exports actually related to things like forestry and mining etc what do you do as a business council and what are your members doing to try to help educate the public or Mm -hmm. do you think people are actually aware and they just don't care about this and there's a political or kind of a, a partisan reason why all these blockades are happening
2: Well, I I think there's a whole bunch of complexities into what's going on right now. Obviously, the Wet'suwet'en are going through a process in public around how they wanna govern themselves and who binds and speaks for the nation. And that's been going on for some time. As you recall, the Dalgamuk decision in 1997 brought by the hereditary chiefs was uh, really the first to establish that right and title existed. But since that time, uh, unlike many nations around British Columbia uh, that have resolved the issue of hereditary chiefs versus elected chiefs or clans and who talks on behalf of the nation, uh, the Wet'suwet'en are still going through that process, and th- that needs to be respected. What's happening though is that you've got some individuals that have decided to insert themselves in that division uh, for pure economic reasons, from external markets, uh, for a variety of social reasons, and it's fracturing the community. Uh, people forget that eighty percent of the Wet'suwet'en people voted in favor, for example, of the CGL pipeline, but it's also fracturing First Nations. We do a lot of work with the Indigenous populations in BC. We have a an MOU with the Assembly of First Nations and what we call a champions table, which is 11 chiefs and 11 CEOs. And we're working on governance, capacity building both individuals and systems to be able to make sure that we eliminate the health, education, social gaps that indigenous communities face in this province. And to do that through sustainable economic development that creates sole source income that leads to self-determination. And so back to your question, what are we doing about that? We're uh, invested in things like uh, an internal leaders program. We're working with all the universities in British Columbia, the trade schools, technical schools, to identify Indigenous youth to ensure, whether they're in urban environments or rural environments, that they can have a job coming out of school for a two-year period of time with a company. Uh, Those individuals then learn about business, they learn about the sector, but we're building peer-to-peer networks, not just with themselves, but another group of non-Indigenous leaders, largely, called Next at the Business Council, almost 600, that are working to build peer networks. So if the individual Indigenous student that's a leader goes back to the community, he not only brings that economic knowledge, but he also brings that peer knowledge and that connectedness to the broader population and the broader business economy in British Columbia. So that's one example, Daniel. Um, we, we're communicating regularly around the connection of what I call the boardroom table to the kitchen table. One of the things that we've done, we're a convener, and so we launched last fall something called the BC Prosperity Index. And it speaks to the issue of reconciliation, but it really looks at um, the conditions for economic prosperity for social prosperity and for individual prosperity. And we rank those around a variety of things, including climate, education, taxes, a variety of things, and we get a weight. Well, we got a C, about 11 out of 21 jurisdictions we measured ourselves against. But what it does is it provides the opportunity to bring people together from labor, from indigenous communities, from urban environments, rural environments, and say, look, we're 17th out of 21 in this particular issue, maybe childcare. What could we be doing collectively to actually advance policies and ideas that move us up the scale so as a young family you can afford to live and work and raise children in a way that uh, many of us have had the opportunity to do through our lifetime? So there's a bunch of that social change that businesses have to step up, in my opinion, to take greater leadership for. Um, ESG gets thrown around, but it's really around the value proposition that businesses present, not just in making profit, but how that profit makes good. And so we're doing a lot of that work through some of those vehicles.
0: One of, uh, I think, the business community is to be complimented in British Columbia, and I think we also have seen that within the labor movement, where my background as well, where unions are working uh, to find ways to get uh, indigenous and other workers who are traditionally uh, not there, uh, disabled uh, women workers, into the workforce into apprenticeships. I'm wondering, though, um, with the current situation, we've seen some vigilante action in a couple of areas Mm -hmm. where people have actually attacked, uh, physically knocked the blockades away, and... There's a lot of uh, racist attacks on people on Twitter and elsewhere. Are you concerned that despite the steps that business, labor, government have all made, uh, and the passage of UNDRIP, uh, the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People by the legislature unanimously, are you concerned that the current events are gonna cause a backlash on reconciliation?
2: I am, and I've talked to dozens of chiefs, Bill, in the last couple of weeks that fear that same thing. Um, People forget that in British Columbia, because we haven't had treaties, uh, 15 or 20 years ago, we had to actually start talking to one another. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of the most creative, of both public policy and relationships, evolved because we started talking to one another. And today we, we, uh, uh, track this, there are over 500 agreements in place between communities and businesses in British Columbia that range from small relationships and partnerships to very large partnerships like the Trans Mountain Pipeline mm-hmm. or YVR, which provides 1% of its gross revenue to the Musqueam. But the big story of that is really around education, training, uh, shared decision-making, and those kinds of things. So there's really deep relationships. I've got some great friends that are chiefs around this province. Joe Alphonse is one of them from Mm Silco But the problem is that um, I would argue that there's some individuals that are using this issue to divide the Wet'suwet'en and to do it purposefully for reasons that have nothing to do with Indigenous reconciliation. And I don't say that lightly. And it's concerning because the next issue that comes along, they'll be gone and we'll be left with the consequences of that fracture that goes on. And if you live in a small community, I grew up in one in, in the Fraser Valley, you have to live and work with people, whether Indigenous or not. We had 10 First Nations communities around our downtown. And when you start to blame somebody for your inability to succeed personally, it becomes very difficult in the small community. And that's frankly where business and indigenous leaders and labor need to step up and say, we're not gonna let this happen. And we're uh, working with people behind the scenes and we're gonna be doing that publicly very quickly to talk about the fact we need to provide leadership. Because I think governments are frankly constrained, but they've also created expectations. So you talked about the UN declaration. We worked a lot with the province and the federal government on that path. But in the latest budget, uh, the province actually cut the ministry responsible's budget. So the biggest policy change I've seen in my career in the last 30 years uh, around implementing UNDRIP and the principles of reconciliation actually is gonna have less resources and less money to help governance issues like the Wet'suwet'en, uh, less money to build infrastructure to make decisions and make sure that indigenous people have full access to the economy and the kind of lifestyle that you and I want. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Greg, you mentioned the budget, the provincial budget, mm-hmm. and you represent uh, some of the largest businesses in the province of mm-hmm. British Columbia. And I've just um, had a chance mm-hmm. to kind of scan online and I noticed some of the things you, uh, your organization seems to be concerned about. One was the increase of taxes on those who are, um, who are making more than $220,000. I think it was a, a, an additional $216 million of revenue coming into the provincial government. Um, you've also noted that uh, forestry uh, revenue is estimated to drop, I think 12.5% mm-hmm. next year. And and last but not least, uh, you guys have lowered your uh, GDP forecast for the province. So all of that doesn't sound particularly rosy. And yet, uh, I think Bill indicated <laughs> in, a previous, in a previous podcast, which uh, our listeners and viewers can go back on to. Um, <coughs> Bill indicated mm. that there was general support from the business community uh, for the budget. Would you like to clarify whether or not you- uh,
2: <laughs> Well, <laughs> Bill and I have been good friends for a long time. Bill, you yes. got it wrong.
0: <laughs> the business community- Tell Anderson, she, she's given <laughs> the B minus.
2: <laughs> well, um, we all grade differently. Uh, um, the Business Council was really disappointed in the budget. Uh, we talked about it at the outset of the show. We're in a, a critical time in the juncture of British Columbia. Uh, We're seeing a slowing of the global economy. Uh, We're seeing trade wars. Uh, We're seeing that retraction in the Hobbesian world of self-interest. And you see that in Britain through Brexit. You see it obviously in the United States, but you see it in Europe generally. Uh, And you see it in pockets of Canada as well with uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta. And you also see it with the Legault government in Quebec really looking on their national interests. And um, the finance minister uh, talked about the fact she was very focused on affordability focused on services for people that are vulnerable, and we fully support the investments in those programs, particularly, for example, childcare and accessibility to childcare. Obviously, we want more families uh, able to work uh, in a tight labor market, particularly women, which are underrepresented in the labor force. So that's important. Uh, similarly, there's been, uh, investments in uh, tuition for people uh, trying to get into post-secondary institutions and getting money up front to pay the bills before you get to school. But On the third stool of a sustainable economy, there was very, very little. In fact, there was added headwinds to the headwinds we already have in British Columbia. The last five years, Daniel, we've seen over $5 billion of added taxes, fees, and costs to business in British Columbia. We have now the highest uh, carbon tax in North America and among the highest in the world, and the only one that doesn't have protections for trade-exposed industries, which is the backbone of the economic growth in British Columbia. Uh, Every other province in the country has protections for energy-intensive trade-exposed industries, even those that are suing the federal government over the carbon tax. So it's a bit ironic that BC is leading, but we're being punished. As I said earlier, we're getting carbon leakage, where capital's leaving the province, and I see it every day. And that means less jobs, less investment, and ultimately, the only ability to reduce our domestic emissions will be through deindustrialization, which harms both rural and urban economies. Half of all the natural resource jobs in BC are produced right here in Lower Mainland and Victoria. And so we don't get that interconnection. The port, year to date, is down 15% in its trade. And so, all of those ripple effects of high-wage jobs that help with affordability, investment necessary to drive technology that reduces our emissions that we can sell to the world, um, none of that was talked about in the budget. Sorry, I should say it was talked about in the budget, but there was no action in the Mm -hmm. budget. And and now we've got the coronavirus, which we think is going to have a significant and material impact to the global economy, let alone Canada and British Columbia's economy which were already vulnerable to some of the forces at play today. Right. Do, you,
1: do you think that the coronavirus and the blockades were adequately uh, uh, incorporated into the budget? Because I think Bill said that that was a question that the finance minister was asked and Finance Minister indicated that, yes, uh, the officials had looked at that and had factored that into the next year. Do you think that was adequately? uh
2: Well, in in fairness to the the Finance Minister, budgets, as you know, start to be built in September. And by the time the budget is tabled, things have been locked down for a few weeks. And the coronavirus was really just starting to emerge, as people recall, in mid-January. So, you know, the ability to respond to that, Uh, let alone understand the magnitude, is complicated. Uh, Today, there's no question that the budget does not provide the means to be able to adequately address the consequences of what's going to come from the virus, which likely will be a pandemic, Mm -hmm. nor the uh, negative impacts that are coming as a result of supply chains being disrupted. Uh, I've talked to manufacturers that literally uh, all manufacturing in parts of China have shut down, and that means inputs into the things that we make here in right. British Columbia and Canada won't be available and so it means businesses have to lay off and shut down and the cascading impact of that on how you get your medicines may not be on the shelves store uh, store shelves uh, and not to create panic, but we're, we need to be thinking about how we actually manage those issues. And we're already in an environment where a lot of people fear for their jobs and fear for their economic well-being. We've got very high indebtedness uh, levels in the province and in the country. And and there aren't a lot of those kinds of thoughts in the budget, in my view.
0: Well, I will mischievously remind you, Daniel, and you, Greg, that <laughs> Carol James and I fought the carbon tax that was introduced by Carol Taylor and Gordon Campbell, <laughs> BC Liberals at the time. Uh, almost won an election over that one but um, more seriously.
2: But uh, I should be clear I mean we're very supportive of the carbon tax but what we've done is we've layered regulation and all kinds of other things on top of it and haven't thought it through. And and
0: I work with some industries and unions and industries who are affected by the the export market and the carbon tax impact so absolutely it's something uh, that needs to be addressed by the government. I guess my question really though is um, if you didn't see what you were looking for there and we heard from Bridget Anderson from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade said we needed more on competitiveness, mm-hmm. something Val Litwin from the Business Council also said, uh, or uh, the uh, Chamber of Commerce also mm-hmm. said. What would the Business Council be looking for? What should have been in there if there was one particular thing? I mean,
2: yeah, I, well, I think there's three things, uh, and it comes back to where we're actually. At in the economy. Uh, the untold story is really the economy's been dre- driven by three things in the last couple of years. One is unprecedented levels of immigration. Mm-hmm. So we're growing the pie but the slice of the pie is staying the same or getting smaller. Mm-hmm. We had uh, over 70,000 net people come into British Columbia. Most of them come into the lower mainland. And because of language challenges and others, uh, it's a real strength and opportunity for British Columbia because of the heterogeneity of the population. But it takes a little bit longer to get into the economy. And the consequence of that is that you come in and you have a bump in the economy by buying groceries and uh, know, beds and furniture and all those kinds of things. But you're also adding to congestion in mm-hmm. healthcare and on the roads mm-hmm. and in transit and others. And so um, the consequence is that that's 1.4 percent growth is unprecedented in Canadian history. And it's going to continue on for the next number of years under the strategy we've got. The second is LNG Canada, which wasn't mentioned, I don't believe, in the budget at all, is another significant contributor to the economy this year. Uh, And low interest rates where people are borrowing because they need to and or because they see opportunities. But the consequence of those three things, we'd be significantly below 1% in our GDP growth mm-hmm. going forward. Canada is gonna have a weak 1.6% growth rate this year. So that's the background, I think, going forward. What we have, would have liked to have seen is really three things. Um, we need to start to have specific regulatory and tax reform. And Bill, you've been in the middle of this for years. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we still have the same tax system that was announced uh, the day the princess became a queen, and she's now the longest-serving monarch <laughs> in the realm. Um, my grandfather actually had a business in this very building in the mm, 1940s really? and 50s, <laughs> and he's out of business, but the tax system that he used is still in place. Yeah. My kids download things digitally. Uh, we were talking about Uber earlier. We mm-hmm. you know, asked for people to take us around on our phones. Mm-hmm. Um, the economy's moved on, and we're still stuck in a buggy and whip generation. Mm-hmm. The other side is uh, we would, so so when I say regulation, um, uh, using technology. So for example, we've got satellites that take pictures of the province every 15 minutes. There's great firms here that can knit those together to do really sophisticated land use planning, where instead of actually waiting for somebody to come with a clipboard and a pen, you could actually do regulatory compliance, but also regulatory approval. I could go and buy a $300 million building on my phone right now but it takes me six years to get a permit to build a building in the city of Vancouver. That It's almost twice as long now to build a building in Vancouver mm-hmm. than it took to win the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, is that we're just not keeping up with the pace of capital and the pace of change. Um, the other thing that we'd like to see is a real innovation strategy. Uh, commend the government for the work they're doing on quantum. I think it's going to be significant in terms of the implications for the economy. But it's crickets chirping around some of the real strengths we've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, our precision healthcare and medicine uh, and life sciences sector is significant. So is our digital economy, which is significant here on both um, uh, uh, artificial reality and virtual reality and the applications on things from medicine to how we move and how we live, Uh, digital twins of cities to think about how we plan and dealing with things like the opioid crisis and others. There's real applications of smart technology, including blockchain, which creates transparency around how we actually deal with the world Uh, Back to climate change, if we're going to sequester carbon and sell the offsets, you can actually track using blockchain the veracity of that offset going forward. And that's another opportunity for First Nations to insert themselves in the economy Mm -hmm. as uh, stewards of the land, but also reforesting and protecting the land and selling off the carbon sequestration from it. So those kinds of things around innovation uh, just were really underwhelming in the budget. And back to the tax on those people earning large incomes. Uh, There's no question that uh, we want to make sure we've got tax fairness in British Columbia, but we need smart tax. Uh, The finance ministry will know that every jurisdiction that has raised taxes to this level never achieves the revenue that they set out to achieve because uh, people that earn those incomes either pick up their tools and leave for other opportunities or they restructure their, their affairs so they don't pay it. But what you're really saying is sending a signal at exactly the same time as these other challenges are on us that you can't get anything built in Canada, there's no certainty of the regulatory process, But we like an innovative economy that's clean. So if you come here and help us do that, we're gonna tax you with 54% of your income. And if you buy a house, we're actually gonna give you a speculation tax Mm -hmm. on top of that. Welcome to British Columbia, because we love you to help come and drive the future of our economy. Mm -hmm. So we're just not thinking about the consequences of the reputation and how we do that. And it's not to say that you don't tax fairly, that you don't have proper regulation in place, but we need to have smart regulation smart tax and smart strategy around the economy and it's missing today. One
1: question I'd like to ask you before you take uh, take off is uh, around smart licensing. And mm. we've talked um, a little bit here about Uber and, and uh, kind of getting. I think originally the concept was that Uber and Lyft would have to get like 23 different licenses in mm. different municipalities. Now they've come together and we now have one regional license. And I think most uh, of all the municipalities in the metro area will sign on. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, um, around the, the licensing itself, does that become a template for other businesses and other uh, uh, perhaps new digi- in part of the digital economies? Is there some hope there that you can operate in these multiple jurisdictions and not have to be getting twenty three different licenses? And, and the second part of the question is, um, is the Metro Vancouver region the right region to be talking about? I mean, are we talking about
2: something that's in the reality of today's economy? So, to- total view. Yeah. So good question. I, I mean, collaboration is always great because you actually hear other opinions and you come up with better solutions. Um I, I would challenge, I guess, a couple things around the region and also regional licensing and step back just a minute. So we were talking a little bit about competitiveness early, really in a changing Hobbesian world. So the World Economic Forum does a competitiveness review every year and they just it comes out in November. Uh, Canada has gone in the last two years from 10th to 14th. So these are national numbers and you can equate them into BC. The burden of government on the economy, we're 38th. We're just ahead of Egypt. And the consequence of that is that when people are intuitively trying to get things done and it's really complicated and there isn't a clear path forward, people take their capital and move it somewhere else. In the case of permitting and and your example with Uber, it's a great example where we let forces actually stall uh, innovation and change until it couldn't be stalled any further, and then it forced some collaboration. But in the context of where the economy's going and innovation going forward, we're not thinking about the region in the right terms. So I was a kid growing up in Chilliwack. We used to come to the odd Canuck game in the 1970s when regional districts were put into place. And I was saying to Daniel, there was a mushroom farm and two dairy farms between Chilliwack and Langley. But in 1971, the Metro Vancouver boundary stopped at Langley because there was nothing east of that. Well, today the fastest growing communities and the biggest population growth is happening in those communities. Metro Vancouver is not confined by the jurisdiction of of Metro Vancouver that stops at Langley and Lions Bay. It now goes from Pemberton to Hope. Mm. So why wouldn't we be building um, transit that moves people quickly connects people with purpose, and think about the region more holistically. The problem is with 23 municipalities, and I'm not making an argument for amalgamation, but with 23 municipalities, they're not motivated to actually work together to build an economic strategy for the people that are moving here. They're not motivated to build a transportation strategy for that bigger region I talked about. And when you talk to people on the street, I've got a challenge with my affordability because I can only afford to buy something in Maple Ridge but my child care is in Quitlam and my job is in Burnaby. Mm-hmm. And the transit connectivity of that how is fractured. You, but how do you,
1: Greg, I, I, this is something from my days back at City Hall, we were talking mm-hmm. about back in the, in the early 2000s is, how do you give an incentive to a city to grow their economy? Because as you said, there's no incentive mm-hmm. at the moment. All of the revenue that is generated, the majority of the revenue that's generated <coughs> through economic growth goes to the provincial and the federal governments. Uh, Municipal governments are saying, why would we bother? So how do you address that? Well,
2: I'll I'll maybe turn it around the other way and I can give you some some examples and some data. Um, The reality is, is that municipalities were originally formed, those 23 back in the day when there was defined communities, and now they're all interconnected. But if you look at the industrial property tax base versus the residential property tax base in some communities is as much as 25 or 30 to one. Right. So it, it, it's loading on and you're seeing it in stories all the time where the air rights and small businesses are shutting down. And the consequence is, is that that revenue stream is going to diminish in those communities. And so it's going to put more burden on residences to pay the property tax bill. So you can you can see the math coming. Mm-hmm. As you get fewer businesses in the community, less industrial tax base because people leave because they can't afford to continue to operate anymore, um, you're going to get a public backlash. And municipalities have been able to, through DCCs and through that disproportionate tax, been able to avoid that public backlash, but it's going to come. And so I would argue that the incentivization short term is to say, how do we help you deal with the needs that you've got from a revenue standpoint, but attract the businesses that are going to actually create vibrant neighborhoods, vibrant communities, and connected communities going forward. And here's some opportunities for good behavior. If you densify to create the kind of uh, housing and rental housing we need to attract the talent that's coming into this marketplace over the course of time, here's some things that's going to happen around the amenities that we can help you with that you're currently having to pay the pocket. Mm Um, so I think there's a there's a, a mature conversation, Daniel, it needs to happen. But I see it every day. Businesses are leaving municipalities because of skyrocketing industrial property taxes or commercial property taxes. And it gets uh, exacerbated by the fact that transit doesn't support them because they can't get the workers to the workplace.
0: But Greg, uh, I mean, to differ slightly with you, um, I do work with um, the Better uh, Transit Coalition and Mm -hmm. and the Mayor's Council on Transit for Metro Vancouver actually has a 10-year plan. They are implementing phase two. They are actually doing a lot of things. Is that not the right kind of model for our municipality? And, And doesn't include HOPE? Doesn't include Pemberton, but it certainly is all the municipalities and they are working together.
2: So, so what are they doing in Chilliwack and Abbotsford and Maple Ridge and Mission, which are the fastest growing communities? The, the problem, Bill, is mm-hmm. that in uh, and, and municipalities work within the constructs they're given, they're working in a 1970s construct mm-hmm. that doesn't exist today. Mm-hmm. And the average person now, uh, it can take two hours to get from Chilliwack to downtown and people do that twice a day. To yeah, and from work, crazy. and it increases our climate impacts. Yep. Yep. It increases, uh, you know, um, health issues uh, personally around stress and anxiety, and it ultimately uh, forces families to decide whether or not they can have families if that's mm-hmm. their choice. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is we need a bigger, more mature conversation. To say, look, mm-hmm. that ten-year strategy is great, but. You know, that's like say, Vancouver saying, we're gonna do a 10-year strategy on the economy of British Columbia, but it's only within this, you know, the confines of the city of Vancouver.
0: So it's could, not the way the world works. Do you see that as a provincial role then? Because I would suspect, the that probably that, here, that Chilliwack doesn't want to join Metro Vancouver because they'd have to pay higher gas taxes to pay for transit. Uh, I mean, there's only, so should it be the so province proposing some But the reality career? is, is
2: that right now, to be candid, Metro Vancouver is an unelected body mm-hmm. that's unaccountable that most people don't understand. Mm-hmm. And there's over a billion dollar intrusion into everyone's lives, good or bad, I'm, be, I'm being agnostic. Mm-hmm. But their mandate is a geography bill that no longer is relevant to the way that people live and work and the economy works. We've got the biggest gateway in Canada, mm-hmm. and we are the gateway to North America. And I know that there's work being done on a good strategy, but it stops around the borders uh, of that Metro Vancouver region and we get roadblocks and and, uh, we get uh, choke points that as a consequence of these uh, protests to bring it back to the here and now, that traffic is gonna start to divert to LA Long Beach. It's starting to move through the Panama Canal. That means fewer jobs, lower wages, higher costs because we're going to have to import from greater distances those goods and the knock-on effects of that will all impact the metro metro vancouver mayors directly mm-hmm. and so but nobody's given the responsibility to think in those terms and that's mm-hmm. where the province i believe has a significant role there was a bit of a tell in the throne speech as you might recall talking about abbotsford mm-hmm. but uh frankly that's something that we can all uh lean into mm-hmm and give municipalities the ability to grow. So back to your question on Uber, that becomes an irrelevancy, Daniel, if you start to give a mandate that's much broader on how are we gonna move? How are we gonna move goods? And how are we gonna increase the affordability through densification on transit? And instead of building it every 20 years, build it every year so that we're building towards a vision around the, the uh, talent and the needs of the people of see.
1: You've been hearing from Greg Davignon, the CEO of the BC Business Council. Thank you so much, Greg, for coming on the show. I know I learned a lot today in the short time we had with you.
0: Lots to think about, lots to worry about. Thanks, Greg. Yes. Thanks very much. <laughs> Appreciate thanks it so
1: much, Greg. Thanks. We'll be right back.
0: BC Polytalk thanks Harbour Air for supporting the show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show.
1: So Bill, uh, another interesting discussion with uh, Greg Davignon from the BC Business Council. Um, you know, he went through some pretty heavy topics. I mean, mm-hmm. I, there were some points yeah. there where I think the two, you and I were both just looking at it going, what do you say next, right, yeah. some pretty heavy topics, yeah. but but some really interesting things. I have a few takeaways from from him and uh, we talked about it earlier around the amount of investment of time that the BC Business Council has done to work with Aboriginal communities mm-hmm. and I hadn't realized. How much time that they had actually done, and some of the the different initiatives they had put in, and and I could see I, I could see the concern on his face around what's going on outside and whether or not that's all going to go up, uh, up like a puff of smoke because yeah. of all these blockades.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I think Daniel too is uh, Greg talked about working with labor, and I think for a lot of people in the general audience and the general public would say, well, labor and business they're always at loggerheads, but. Uh, Greg was mentioning he has a good relationship with Laird Cronk, the president of the BC Federation of Labor. Mm-hmm. Labor and business are working on some of these indigenous issues, on training issues. So, notwithstanding the, the common conception, I think there's a lot there. And I think the more topics that Greg depresses with, because <laughs> some of them are getting a little <laughs> heavy, uh, yeah. the more the need for everybody to work together government, labor, indigenous, community, all sorts of folks have to come together if we're going to solve our economic and social problems.
1: Mm-hmm. And he clearly uh, he wasn't happy with the budget. And- I don't think he pulled any punches on that side. But what one of the comments he made, which, um, which you know, again, I hadn't really factored in, but is around the coronavirus and the impact of the economy. And even though the Minister of Finance indicated that they had looked at as best they could, he makes a good point. Those budgets are developed and drafted in the fall and, and early, kind of late winter period, mm-hmm. right? So uh, much of the impact around this coronavirus stuff, we don't even know what's going to happen yet. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, as uh, Harold Wilson famously said, a week is a lifetime in politics. And the budget came down several weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The coronavirus continues to evolve and expand and have the impact on the economy. I'll be looking for Carol James, the finance minister's quarterly update, if not sooner than that. Mm-hmm. But no question, I don't think any government anywhere could do anything to prevent um, some of the impacts that mm-hmm. we're having from this probable pandemic.
1: And Greg was mentioning both on air and off air as well around the issue of businesses leaving and just his mm-hmm. concern around that. So that's definitely uh, when you mix that in with the, the the blockades and the coronavirus and high property taxes, the business community, at least from his perspective and his membership, there's some some concern there.
0: And yet, as I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, we still have the best economy provincially in the country.
1: True. Uh, very true. But he did indicate that uh, the interesting point about the immigration and how much that additional immigration is actually yeah, adding to our yeah. GDP. And I think that was an interesting point for him to make. So, yeah, no so we, I really enjoyed interviewing Greg and uh, want to thank Greg for being on the show today.
0: Yeah, so it was great. Yeah.
1: So we'll be back uh, soon. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Daniel Fontaine.
0: I'm Bill Till. And remember, you can find everything at our website, bcpolytalk.ca. You can also chase us down on Spotify and iTunes for podcasts. You can find us on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find links there. You can go to YouTube and see the show.